Well, I said it before, but I don't think everybody was in here. So uh, let's try it again. He is risen. Amen. There you go. There you go. Amen works too. Don't worry. Same thing. Um, today, we're going to step away from our study in Galatians. I know we've been going through Galatians. We've made it to chapter 3, but we're going to step away from that. And we're actually going to jump back in time about a thousand years. And uh, we're going to move away from the northern Galatia region there. And we're going to focus right now on the land of Israel. So a thousand years in the past, focus on Israel, and uh, we're going to celebrate the anniversary of the most important event that ever took place. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53? If you ran out the door this morning and forgot your Bible, or your phone is about to die and you don't think you have enough battery to last for the next two, three hours, uh, please feel free to uh, raise your hand and we'll bring a, a paper Bible. First service doesn't even, they don't even blink at that, because they know there's a second service, you know, they know, I gotta let you out eventually, but you guys, uh, my wife would come in here and kill me if I kept you guys past the Easter egg, so, don't worry. All right, Isaiah 53, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I guess I probably should have opened my Bible if I was talking. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By, oppre by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. And was numbered with transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful worship that we have already enjoyed. Thank you that uh, we can meet here in relative comfort and peace, not worried about somebody kicking down the door and dragging us off to prison. And we pray for our brothers and sisters across the world that do have to deal with that, Lord, that you would give them strength and peace, and that your presence would be with them and with us, Lord. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> to 
Today we're going to be looking at a prophecy that was made nearly 1,000 years before Jesus Christ would be crucified on a Roman cross for your sins and for mine, and would be raised three days later to heaven, which would give us hope, the hope that we would have eternal life when we die, as long as we place our faith in Christ. I titled this sermon, The Crushing of the Good Shepherd. The passage is pretty obvious as to what the crushing part is about, but at first glance, you may not see what the good shepherd part is. But don't worry, we'll get to that. Isaiah 53 breaks pretty naturally into four sections for us. The first three verses are going to describe uh, the good shepherd himself. The second set of three verses will tell us what the good shepherd did. The third set of three verses will tell us how the good shepherd did it. And the fourth set will tell us why the good shepherd did it. We have a lot to unpack, and I want to make sure we get a chance to get over there and enjoy the fellowship and the Easter eggs, so let's jump right in. The first three verses of Isaiah 53 are going to tell us about the Good Shepherd. In verse 1, we read, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The youth group has heard me say this often, but you should know, too, that God's word is inspired. What does that mean? It means that 40 different writers over a period of 1,500 years wrote 66 different books that interweave together to make a perfect Bible that we have in our hand right now that is inerrant and perfect. Now, Holy Spirit inspiration doesn't mean that they, they got a quill and they sat behind their desk and they sat down and they just kind of zoned out and woke up and there was a book sitting in front of them. That's not what inspiration is. Holy Spirit inspiration means they wrote what the Holy Spirit inspired them to write in their own hand and in the context of the time that they were in. All that to say that chapters, uh, the little numbers that are next to the verses, and those little titles that are written under the, the paragraphs or above the paragraphs, um, those were added later, about 1400 AD. They're not inspired. And so sometimes when we read a passage like this, we need to remember there's stuff behind it. I mean, if, if Jesus had read Isaiah, which he did, if he'd read it, right, he would have rolled out a big scroll. You know, it would have rolled to the floor and they just would have continued. In fact, they, didn't even, they would have said, go to the part that talks about the suffering servant. And everybody would have gone, okay, uh, that's right about here. They wouldn't have had these verse numbers. So when we read a passage like this, we need to remember there's stuff that comes before it. And when we look back at that, it, we look back and he says, who has believed our message? What message? What are you talking about? So we back up. We go to chapter 52 and we look at verse 13. Chapter 52, verse 13 says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. That's the message. That's the message Isaiah is talking about. Verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's Jesus. Just as many were astonished at you, my people. That's the Israelites. Right? And many, many people were astonished at them. They were the people of God. And it wasn't because they were some fabulous nation. They weren't powerful. They didn't have armies like the Babylonians or the Egyptians. They were the smallest of all nations. But God chose them, and people were astonished by that. And that same astonishment is, is placed on Jesus Christ in, in an honest form. He was marred more than any man. 
his form more than any of the sons of men. We, we didn't talk about it today, but if you've seen The Passion of the Christ or, or, or watched any movies like that, you understand what Jesus went through. Hours and hours of it beating, uh, intense beating by multiple people. A crown of thorns. Thorns were this big on that crown. Jammed down on his head. He, when he was flayed, they used a, a whip that had little pieces of bone or, or rock in there so that they would whip it on him and it would stick. And then they'd pull it and it would rip out. Hours. Hours of that. Not to mention crucifixion. Right? Crucifixion is brutal. You're, you're hung by nails shoved through your, your arms here and then another nail in your feet. And in what you may not know is what kills you in crucifixion is suffocation. As you're hanging there, all the weight of your body on those arms crushes your diaphragm and you can't breathe. And so the only way to breathe is to push up on that spike that's going through your feet so you can gasp, take a breath, and then hang back down on your arms. His appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle many nations there is, is a, a kind of a, a callback to what the, the high priest did at that time. At that time, there was a temple, right? There was a temple, and it, they had this place called the Holy of Holies. And the only person that could go in there was the high priest. And he only went in there once a year. And they would sacrifice this Passover lamb as a symbol of Jesus Christ. And they would sacrifice this lamb, and they would take the blood, and he'd take some hyssop. It was like a bush. And he would dip it in there. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle that blood all around the ark that was in there. And it was symbolic. It was symbolic of the sins being covered by the blood. Someday, the sins would be covered by the blood of Jesus. But in that moment, it was covered by the blood of that Passover lamb. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. This is talking about Jesus sprinkling all the nations, not just the Israelites. Now we all can enjoy the benefit. Israelites, Gentiles, all together. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. They will see Jesus. And what they had not heard, they will understand. They will understand why Jesus is there. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This was written about the Israelites. Think about how many times Jesus told his disciples exactly what was going to happen. How many times did he say, I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm raised again. And nobody believed him. In fact, at one point, Peter pulled him to the side and said, Lord, may it never be. And Christ said, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Christ knew Isaiah 53. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And he knew that he'd been revealed. Isaiah continues, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. He grew up right in Israel. right? He grew up all around him. In fact, when he goes back to his hometown and he preaches in his hometown, they say, isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter? Right? He grew up in and amongst them. And like a root out of parched ground. That root there refers to something Isaiah said earlier. That Jesus is a root of Jesse. He's an offshoot of Jesse who was the father of King David. Right? And then we get to this, this part in verse 2 which is pretty interesting. For he grew up among them like a tender shoot. Like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate to burst your bubble. But Jesus was not a shampoo model. 
okay? All those pictures you've seen of Jesus, and he has the long flowing hair and the beautiful face. And he, and he looks like, you know, if he walked into the room, everybody, all the ladies would be like, ah, and all the men would be like, man, I want to be like that guy. <laughs> it's not what the Bible tells us. Look, it says, it says he has no stately form or majesty. He doesn't look like the president. He doesn't look like a senator. He doesn't look like a CEO of a company. <clears throat> Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. If you walked into, into Jerusalem when Jesus was there, and you were just looking around, you wouldn't have been able to pick him out of a crowd. It would have looked just I'd be like trying to pick Jesus. Who, which one of you is Jesus? I don't, I don't know. If you hung around him long enough, you'd be able to see it. But just visually, you wouldn't be able to see him. He looked just like you and I. Verse 3 continues, he was despised and forsaken of men. Despised, contemptible, despicable, disgusting. Look in your Bible, turn back to Psalm 22. Let's look at how people treated uh, Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. Just for a little background here, Psalm 22 was written by King David, even before Isaiah was written. And, and he, in it, he describes, it's a prophetic psalm that describes uh, the crucifixion of Christ. And the interesting part about this, because it talks about piercing his hands and his feet, and uh, talks about the spear going into his side. The interesting part about Psalm 22, it describes crucifixion several hundred years before crucifixion was ever even invented. Right? It's weird to think of a, a form of torture being invented, but it wasn't. Back then, capital punishment was done, done by stoning. Right? They'd throw big rocks at him and, and until he died. We read about that in the Bible too, right? They're, they're stoning. So Psalm 22 describes crucifixion before it was even a thing. Several hundred years before it was even a thing. And, and I want to read this first verse to you here, and I want you to see if this sounds familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. That's what Jesus said when he was up on the cross. Right? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. That's where you kind of curl your lip. Right? They sneer at them. They wag their head. This guy. Right? Saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's what the Pharisees were doing at the foot of the cross. Well, Jesus hung on that cross. They mocked him. They said, if you believe in God, call on him. He's, he's all powerful. He can get you down from the cross. Go ahead, call on him. They shot the lip out of him, and they wagged their heads at him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's Isaiah 53, where in verse 3 there, he says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acquainted with grief, it's, it's a pivotal factor in his life. When I say to you, Jesus Christ, if you know anything about Jesus Christ, you think of the cross. You think of the grief of the cross. right? And like one... Uh, from whom men hide their face. I told you in the first service, I totally butchered the names of, of the ladies in the, in the ladies' ministry. I looked right at Bonita. She was sitting right over there, and her name went right out of my head. I hate it when that happens. It happens to me a lot, especially when I'm getting older. I think my memories are falling out of my hair. I don't know. But it, 
you get embarrassed, right? And what do you do when you get embarrassed? You know, oh, you turn your head, right? You turn your head. And, and when sinners see Jesus, what's their first reaction? They turn their head. They turn from him. They don't want to be reminded of him. What was the first thing Adam and Eve did in the garden when they when they sinned? They hid. They hid, yes. They sewed fig leaves, tried to, tried to make some uh, fig bikinis, and hid. Right? They didn't want to see the face of God. They hid their face, and, and, and that's what they were doing there in Israel as well. People are still doing it today. They're hiding their face from Jesus because they don't want their sins exposed. Back to Isaiah 53.3, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. We go back to being despised here, and we see a new element. We did not esteem him, meaning the true importance of Jesus slipped right past the Jews. He was the Messiah, and it just went right past them. They didn't get it. They didn't esteem him. They didn't recognize him as the Messiah, and therefore they treated him horribly and were disgusted by him. John chapter 1, verse 10 uh, tells us he was in the world. That's Jesus, was in the world. And the world was made through him. Jesus made the world. And the world did not know him. Nobody knew him. They didn't recognize him as the creator. He came to his own, that's the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. That's the good shepherd. This is who we're talking about on Easter. And every other day for that matter. The good shepherd was despised by the Jews and is still being despised by Gentiles and Jews alike today. I don't know about you, but if someone treated me the way that Jesus was treated, if they despised me and thought I was disgusting, if they turned their head every time I came into a room, I wouldn't feel very inclined to help those folks out. Would you? But the good shepherd didn't just help people out. He didn't go around patching bike tires and rescuing kittens from trees. So what did he do? Look at verse 4, Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Literally, if you translate that literally, our sickness and pain. Jesus came to remove the sickness and pain of sin out of our lives. Yet, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. When they were gathered around the cross and Jesus was up there dying, they looked at him and said, man, God is punishing this guy for his sins. He is under severe punishment right now. And they were right and they were wrong. Jesus was being punished for sins, but they weren't Jesus' sins. They were our sins. We move on to verse 5. And it says uh, in verse 5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 5 is a beautiful display of the gospel. It tells us what the, what the good shepherd did. In the first half, we see the damage done by transgressions and iniquities. Those are just big words for sin, right? It's Christianese for sin. My transgressions, my inequities. It's sin, right? We see the damage. He was pierced. He was crushed. In the second half, we see how the good shepherd heals his sheep. Our punishment fell on him. His scourging heals us. Verse 6 brings us to the end of our three verses on what the good shepherd did for us and reminds us of who needs a good shepherd. Isaiah says in verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Who? How many? All. Each of us has turned our own way. Which one of us? 
each one of us. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, us all, to fall on him. On who? Jesus. Every last one of us has sinned. Each of us has turned his own way. But God put all those sins on Jesus. Every last one of them. And that's why I can say, as I look at a room of people, I know a lot of people in here, I don't know some of the people in here. But I can tell you, even if I don't know you, Jesus died for your sins. I can tell you that, for all of them. Even if you're sitting in your chair right now, and you're calculating, how long is this guy going to jabber? Because I don't believe any of this nonsense. Christ died for your sins. There's only one sin left that won't be forgiven. One sin. One sin left that will hold everybody in the world back. You might be sitting there thinking about something terrible you did in your past. That's not it. You could be thinking about how you hurt people your entire life. That's not it. You could be thinking about anything right now. Abortion, pornography, substance abuse, abuse of others, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, adultery, theft, murder, pride, and anything else I've missed. That's not it. Because Christ paid for all of that. The only sin that separates you now from the love of God and eternal salvation is the sin of not accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, everything you have done, everything you are doing, and everything you will do is forgiven. Christ paid for it all. The only sin that won't be forgiven. The sin of looking up at Jesus on that cross and shooting your lip out at him. The sin of of looking up at him and saying, nope, I'm fine where I am. Right here in the mud and the filth of this world. I'm doing just fine. I don't need you. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes, mostly. I try not to swear in church. I don't steal anything that I think people will notice. I don't hate people unless they fill in the blank. I don't murder because I'd probably get caught. I don't covet my neighbor's car because I'm getting a new one soon and it's going to be better anyway. I don't commit adultery. Just don't look at my thought life. I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. Hogwash. There is none righteous. No, not one. Every one of us has turned our own way. And God took all of our self-righteous, sanctimonious sin, and he laid them square on the shoulders of Jesus Christ as he hung on that cross 2,000 years ago. That is what the good shepherd did for you and for me. And how? Verse 7 tells us, Isaiah, he, he continues, he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He did not open his mouth. Friends, Jesus wasn't murdered. It was a murder, don't get me wrong. But he wasn't murdered. He gave his life willingly for you and for me. Isaiah continues in verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Listen to that again. The statement, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Then the question. 
and asked for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due? We deserve the penalty for sin, but he took it all for us. He continues in verse 9, he says, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death. You see, when you're crucified, part of the punishment is you're cut off, you're done. Right? It was a big deal back then to be buried with your ancestors. Right? They, they take their bones and they put them in a little box and they bury them with their ancestors. When you're crucified, they drop your body outside and burn it. The dogs take it away. It's, it's not a pleasant thing. Crucifixion continued even after death. They continued to punish. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. We don't have time to dig into this too much, but just know that a thousand years before it happened, Isaiah said that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. A thousand years. Amen. Can't even tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow. But a thousand years in the past, before it happened, Isaiah said Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea was that rich man. And he lit Jesus' tomb for three days. And the reason he only needed it for three days was because he was sinless. Jesus, fully man and fully God, was the only person in history to go through life perfectly and sinless. But why? Why would the good shepherd do this? Look at verse 10. But the Lord, and you see Lord there, and it, it, it could be confusing sometimes if you have done a lot of study in the Old Testament, but the, the Jews were very concerned about even writing the name. Of, of Yahweh, of God, right? So they came up with uh, different ways to write it so that they wouldn't actually be writing the name of God. It's just everybody knew, oh, that means the name of God, right? And so when we translate it, we translate it with all caps. You see that Lord there in all caps. That means God, the Father, right? But the Father was pleased to crush him, his son, putting him to grief. Turn with me, if you would. John 10. Go to John 10. We're going to start in verse 9. Jesus is telling the parable of the good shepherd. And it must have been so frustrating to be Jesus. I mean, how many times did he tell people things? And they looked at him and did one of the, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he knew they weren't getting it, right? And so in John 10, he's, he's, he says the parable of the good shepherd, and he looks around and he gets a bunch of these. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so he rephrases it. He says, okay, okay, let me try this again. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He is the door, right? This, this is the problem that you run into if you try to, to mix religions, right? You see the coexist stickers, right? I, I absolutely want to coexist with Muslims and Hindus. and I, I absolutely don't want to murder them or anything like that. But when it comes to religion, those religions cannot mix. You can't say Buddha's the way, or Allah's the way, or uh, Krishna's the way. You can't say any of that, and then come here and say, I am the door. Mm -hmm. Christ said, I am the door. There is no other door. Mm -hmm. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, <laughs> and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees, 
and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Someday we'll study John, and when we do, we'll talk about those thieves and robbers and hired hands. But right now, I just want you to look at what Jesus said he was there to do. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and he knows his own. That's the believers. Amen. He knows the believers, and the believers know him like he knows the Father, and the Father knows him. He is the good shepherd. And he says, I'm here to lay down my life for my sheep. The death of Jesus, though voluntary, voluntary, was not merely an ascent to being killed, sort of like an indirect suicide. It was part of a plan to submit to death and then emerge from it victoriously alive. Anyone can lay down their life. If it means the simple termination of physical existence, we will all lay down our life. Everybody dies, right? But only the Son of the Father could, at will, resume his existence. He was acting in accord with a divine plan that involved a supreme sacrifice and a manifestation of divine power. The entire plan was motivated by his love for the Father and his readiness to carry out his Father's purpose. Authority means that he was not the helpless victim of his enemy's violence, but that he had both the right and the power to become the instrument of reconciliation between man and God. And why? What is he saving us from? Because I'm, I'm going to be honest with you here. If, if I don't see anything other than I'm in sin, like, and I don't believe in Christ, then who cares? If, I, if I'm sinning, who good was it? Right? If that offends your God... Sorry, but I'm good with sin. Right? I like doing the things. Mr. Brandon said, a little sinny, sin, sin. Right? <laughs> sinny, sin, sin. I don't mind it. Turn to Luke 16 with me. Turn to Luke 16. And let's see why Jesus did this. What is he saving us from? Because, yes, he's absolutely saving us from sin. But sin leads to something else. Sin is just a, a precursor to what's going to happen. You turn to Luke 16, we're starting verse 19, and Jesus is telling another parable. And I'm not really going to dig into what the parable means. I just want you to see the parable and see the picture here, right? See the picture of what's going to happen if Christ isn't your Lord. If Christ isn't your king, this is what happens. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's just a, another phrase for, for heaven there. He's, he's gone to heaven now. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. This is the rich man now. He's in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good, your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, 
Between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Jesus hung up on that cross for hours in agony. He endured hours and hours of brutal tor torture and torment. Remember Isaiah 52, marred more than any other man. He took the weight of your sin and the weight of my sin on his bloody shoulders. He took the wrath of God and in three hours endured an infinite amount of punishment. So that if we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart that Jesus is Lord, we would be saved. Saved from an eternity of anguish. Bathed in hot tears that dry up the second they come out. Tortured with flame that burns but doesn't consume. Amidst the wails and the gnashing of teeth of millions of others around us who looked at the cross and shot out their lip and wagged their head at him. Oh, friends, if we think COVID was bad, or the death of a loved one is bad, or the pain of a broken relationship is bad, or, or sickness and pain in life is bad, it's nothing compared to an eternity of anguish and torture. Right. Why would we pass this offer of grace up? Why would we shrug our shoulders and return to the dung heap of this world? Why would we shoot out our lip at the hope freely offered? And why did Jesus do it? Keep reading in Isaiah. If he will offer himself up as a sacrifice, he being Jesus, Jesus will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot with him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus Christ died on that cross to save us from an eternity of anguish. And not just to save us, we, we won't just disappear and not have to deal with it but to pull us into eternity of heaven. And I, if, if you're sitting there in your, in your head right now and you're like, heaven, we're, we're just going to sit on clouds and play those stupid little harp things. That you, that's not heaven. That's not heaven. Go back and look at Genesis. Go back and look at the Garden of Eden. Look at what Adam and Eve did. They tilled the garden. They took care of it. They, they, they were put in charge of things. We read parables. We will be put in charge of things. We'll judge angels, the Bible tells. Heaven isn't just sitting on clouds playing harps, folks. It's an eternity of, of beautiful bliss and sinlessness. And that's why Jesus died on the cross, to save you from anguish and give you that bliss. We read in Psalm 22 the familiar words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we also read something that may not have been as familiar. In verse 6, David, speaking for Jesus, says, I am a worm, not a man. When we talked about Peter and John, uh, when we were studying the book of John, we talked about Peter, and I said there are, there are many different words in Greek for love, right? There's agape, phileo, and they all have different meanings and everything like that. Well, in Hebrew, the word for worm, like the earthworm, you know, the one you dig out of, out of the ground and go fishing, right? That worm is called rimah. But in Psalm 22, 6, the Hebrew word for worm is tola'ath. And the tola'ath is known as the scarlet worm. 
The tola'ach looks more like a grub, and it's, it's this deeply colored, uh, deep scarlet red worm, grub-looking thing. And in fact, they in, in the olden times, and they still may do it to this day, I don't know, but uh, the females, they would scrape them off the tree and crush them up, and they would make a dye from this, and that's how they would dye their clothes, and they would get deep, deep red scarlet clothes from the, the blood of this bug, right? Hopefully they washed it afterwards. But this bug, this is tola'ach, the females don't have wings. And what it does is it's got a little beak thing and it climbs up the oak tree and it sucks the sap out of the, the oak tree. And when it comes time, it only lays eggs once in its life, and you'll see why in a second. It, it lays the eggs underneath it, the female does, and then it locks down with, with its shell. Right? It's got a hard outer shell. And it protects those eggs with that shell. And three days after laying those eggs, the larva hatches. This is a little gross, I'm sorry, but those larvae begin eating the live mother. She feeds them from her own body. Around about uh, day three of that, the, the, the mother excretes a red dye. And if you Google this, go home and Google crimson, uh, crimson worm, right? You'll see it looks like blood splats on a tree. It looks like something out of Hollywood, right? Blood splat, right? And, and, and she excretes this all over the tree and all over her little baby tola'ats and marks them for life. Forever they'll be red. Right? And then day four, the tail of the body actually curls and releases them, and it turns into a little heart. Really cool looking. And that little heart is pure white. Pure white. And as it disintegrates, it looks like snow coming off the tree. Just like the mother told off, excreting that crimson dye on her baby worms to mark them for life, Jesus wants you to wash, he wants to wash you in his blood. And mark you for eternity. Amen. Just like uh, the mother Toloth attaches herself to that tree, God sent his son to be attached to a cross for us so that we would be marked with the blood of Christ and be released into the world in Jesus' love to tell others, Go ye therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I commanded you. I'm going to pray in just a second, but afterwards, we're going to sing one final song of praise to the Good Shepherd who was crushed for us. If you're here today and you realized that the hope in Jesus Christ is something you want now, you want to repent of your sins, and you want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, come down and talk to me while we sing. I'd love to talk to you. If you're nervous walking down in front of all these people, that's, that's understandable. I'll be around. Come talk to me. If you want to come down while we're singing and just talk to God, come on down. If you want somebody to pray with you, I'll pray with you. As we sing that last song, may we go forth from here changed people. May we go forth from here never looking at our lives the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for again for this time and for your word and, and the fact that you fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. People have dedicated their whole lives to pouring through the Bible and finding all the prophecies that you fulfilled. Lord, as well over 300. That you literally fulfilled all of those prophecies. Some as, as old as thousands of years. You fulfilled every single one of those, just like you said you would. And Lord, that gives us faith. That gives us hope that you will fulfill the other promise that you made that 
If we put our faith in Christ, if we believe in our heart and profess with our mouth that Christ is Lord, we will be saved. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your love. We thank you again for everybody that's here, Lord. I pray that you would watch over us as we have our, our Easter egg hunt in the back, that we would have good fellowship, that we would have time to talk with each other and get to know each other because we are a body. We're a body under you, Christ. And so we pray that we would be connected. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.